0: chapter 23, verse 2. I found this to be a very interesting verse. And I think this is really good for us today, especially as we look at all the turmoil that's in the world, all of the mess that's going on in the government, all of the things that we think we are all bent out of shape about. Look at this law that was given. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil. You know, how often do people get all ramped up And then they charge out and they ended up doing something evil. That's what was happening here. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil. Following the crowd is not always the best for us. Especially, of course, when it's to do evil. Or joining the trend. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's thinking this. Everybody's wearing this kind of clothes. Everybody's going to the dance. Everybody's doing whatever it is that you want to talk about. Sometimes following the crowd just isn't good. And social media, sometimes just following the crowd on social media can get us in a lot of trouble. You know, I wonder if anybody's done a survey yet of how balanced their lives are between social media and their quiet time with the Lord. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, quiet, peaceful, reading God's scripture, TV off, nothing going on. You know, there's a, there's a balance there. Let's not follow the crowd. So where was this leadership in Aaron? Seems like he's pleasing people right now, and that's always dangerous. The popular opinion is not always right. These people came to him. You know, the history of most of those what you might call righteous movements or right movements in time are usually been lonely souls who have heard the authentic voice of God and did what the voice of God told them, not what the people said, not what the masses would say, not what the people in charge would say, or maybe even the majority. Um, They stood alone a lot of times, or in a small minority. Now you remember with God, you and Him are a majority. So if God calls you to do something, to step out, and you feel God's called you to do it, that you need to do it. doesn't need to be popular. It doesn't need to please all the people. But if God's called you to do it, you need to do it. So most of those great events in history, just a few leaders, if you think about our revolution from the British, from, from the British a small group of guys got together, got together, wrote some documents, and we're still that nation that was birthed by those few people. Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights one person just constantly being consistent gathered a following and changed our society for good. India's independence and Gandhi. One guy, I love it, when he says, well, where are you going? We're going to go to the ocean and make salt. You know, the general says, well, you can't go. It's forbidden. 100 million, uh, well, 100,000 uh, British soldiers cannot stop 100 million Indians from going to the ocean. And they went, it was peaceful. Revivals in church history, many times, it's how God moves on one person, then a small group, then a prayer group, then a church, then churches, and then it spills out into society and society's changed. And aren't we all praying for revival? Aren't we all praying for another great move of God right now in our, in our life? So in a little more than 30 days, a lot of things have gone. The reverence and the awe that they had for God is gone. They're still encamped upon the ground that was called holy, regarded as holy. The cloud of the glory of God could still be seen on the top of the mountain. A visible demonstration of their being very close and in contact and in the immediate presence of God. That's where these people are as they're going into this thing of asking Aaron to make them a God. In chapter 19, the people said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. I read that to you earlier. That's what they said. That was their commitment. Not more than 30 to 45 days ago. The people were consecrated in that chapter. They were washed. Uh, They were ready to meet God. They were sanctified. They were reverent. At the end of that chapter, there was smoke and fire and thunder and the voice of God. All of that just... 40 days ago. So when we suffer from centeritis, me first, you second, we tend to build idols. We tend to lift up people. We tend to do things. For Israel, it's just been 40 days. They forgot the 430 years. They must have known that their their, their people had been stuck there in bondage and in slavery for 430 years. Now they've been in this wilderness without Moses for 40 days and they're complaining after all these bold things they had said. The the leader Moses was missing. They knew that the Lord had brought them out of Egypt. They knew that they had met the Lord right here on the mountain. And now now they are willing to follow a God that they are going to make. So the people gathered together, or better rendering would be, they gathered against Aaron. And he succumbed to the pressure. You know, if all of you rose up and said, you know, Pastor Mike, we really need to um, have a baptismal service up here. You need to go out and buy a tank and put it up here on the platform. And every week we have to baptize. And if we don't do that, then this church is just going to fall apart. That's the kind of pressure that you guys could put on me if you got unified and you had a petition, you signed it and you brought it to me. And I'd have to say, Pastor Pastor Brandon, does that make sense to you? No, okay. No, we're not going to do it. That's not what God's called us to do. That's the pressure that Aaron was starting to feel. These people were coming against him. They gathered against him, and he sent, come to the pressure. Paul deals with this in Galatians. He says, are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, will you now be made perfect in the flesh? Even in churches today, we want to come up with methodologies. We want to come up with programs. We want to come up with things That we've done before and it worked before, and we want to do it again. We have to be willing to open up to new things, be willing to um, sometimes uh, get away from some of the traditions that we have established and allow other things to come into the church. You know, it's possible to begin our Christian life um, trusting in Jesus, and then gradually we begin to trust in ourselves, in our own spirituality. following our own gods or idols is no better for us than it was for ancient Israel. You know, how often do we come to the point to where we put a few good days together and we say, man, I have finally arrived, you you know. I haven't had a bad thought, you know. I've read my Bible every day and I've done all these things and we get to that point to where we say we've really grown and we've really come into a place of spirituality. So how do we create idols in our culture today? You know, it's maybe we're not as far out there as making a golden calf. Maybe we're not going to do something like that. But we do lift up people in our church, in our government, and there's so many examples. There's so many people that you've known, pastors, large pastors that have fallen for one reason or another, sometimes pastors who just are lifted up by the people so much that whether it's the pressure of, of living that life or being in, in that position that they just can't handle in government, you know, don't we sometimes have just the greatest expectations of everything's going to be great now, and then we are still struggling. Uh, we bring the world's ways into our gathering. We, we reach out and we look at what the world's doing, and we say, okay, let's, let's bring our, our world's ways in. If I was to pull out my phone right now and tweet you all a, a tweet and say, you know, keep that in mind as we read these next few verses, well, that would be bringing the world's ways in yeah, it's great to tweet, it's great to Instagram and Facebook, the things that we can use social media for, but we have to be careful that we don't ever sell out or move the, the ministry of the church and the Word of God and the fellowship that we have into bringing the world's things in. We neglect the spiritual for the pleasurable. Now, we've been talking about, Mary and I have been talking about, sometimes Sometimes it's just good to get together and watch a football game, guys. And that's all right. And ladies, sometimes it's good to just go out and have some pie and coffee and just enjoy each other and maybe do some uh, window shopping or do, do some real shopping. You know, t- t- tell, your, tell your husbands, I said, it's okay, okay? There's a great place for fellowship. There's a great place to ask somebody, hey, why don't you come on over and let's have dinner? And it doesn't have to be another Bible study. It doesn't have to be uh, something where it's all church. It's just, hey, let's get to know each other. Let's learn how to care for each other. And you'll be surprised how the Holy Spirit, the voice of God, will take over and you'll be speaking in each other's lives and you won't even know it. It won't be something that was noted out or something that was thought out. It just happens because that's what God's want. And then we begin to trust in our own riches rather than in God's goodness. And we start to worry about our finances, and we worry about how this is going to work and how that's going to work. And those are all things that we can lift up as idols. But again, I would remind you that the, the um, um, antidote to the disease of centeritis is the cross. We keep coming back to it. So in verses 2 to 6, they built a golden calf, and they gave credit for something that God had done to this golden calf. And then they worshiped it, and they sacrificed to it. Amazing, the stiff-necked people, as, as God calls them, that they would do that so soon after all of these victories they had. In verse 4, note they willingly and generously brought their gold. You know, I think that's a good way to determine if you have an idol in your life. Where's your money going? Your hobbies... If you're a photographer, I'm sorry if I'm stepping on toes there. If you're a photographer, there's no such thing as a lens that you can't afford. You know, you will put whatever you want to put into that hobby. Sometimes in sports, we will go out and buy the best of this or the best of that. And we will invest in that a lot more than probably we should. So where you're putting your money is a good way to find out if maybe you have any kind of idols there of what you have. So what should have happened here is is Aaron should have cried out, this is idolatry. We must destroy this golden calf. You people are wrong in calling uh, this creation of man your God. But Aaron wasn't a true leader, but one who leads by following popular opinion. You know, that's an easy way sometimes to lead, is if everybody's saying, you know, this is what we want, we want um, an hour and a half dinner 30 minutes of uh, worship, five minutes of teaching, and then uh, some cake and pie and stuff like that after church for another 45 minutes. If that's what we would do, then we would be leading my popular opinion. And that's not what leaders do. And that's why we keep the Word of God out in front of us. You're going to come here on Sunday nights. We're going to try to keep you in the Word of God. And again, it's not because we want you to learn the information we want you to be transformed by the working of that information in your lives. And so that's what, that's what our prayers are. You're wrong in calling this creation uh, of, of man your God. In verse 5, Aaron causes his sin to be, go even deeper. He builds an altar for worship. And that altar that was supposed to be built that we read about earlier was supposed to be built for God, not for a false god. And he proclaims, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And if you look at that word, Lord, it's all caps. That means Yahweh. So they're taking a feast of the Lord, and they're going to add to it. He didn't take away from it. He just added to it. But that's such a horrible thing for us to do. And that's one of the greatest things, I think, temptations in the church today, just adding something to our worship bringing in some smoke things or some flashing lights going on behind Richard so that as he's leading the worship, we'll have some really high-tech stuff going on and uh, get some strobe lights and things like that. Uh, that's kind of the stuff that we have to be careful of, never bringing that to it. You know, cults do that, especially the, the Mormons. They took the Word of God. They all carry a Bible. Most of them know the Bible, but they have another book. They have another set of instructions that they follow. They added to it. So in verse 6 it says they brought their offerings, they ate and they drank. And you know that's normal for the offerings, that's normal for the feast days in Israel is they would bring the offerings, the sacrifices would take place, there would be a barbecue and there would be some celebration, there would be some eating and some drinking. Very normal. But here we add the verb to play and in the Hebrew it's suggestive of sexual play. So what they have now is a drunken orgy perverting the holy worship and the holy things. So in verses 7 to 14, Moses now intercedes for this rebellious people. He's been busy, you know, for 40 days, writing down all the laws that we talked about in these chapters in between our two studies. He must have thought, how could they? How could they, while I've been gone, while I've been up here talking with the Lord, after all they've seen going on, how could they do this? So the Lord tells Moses, your people, as if the Lord wants to disown the people. The Lord tells Moses, your people, and he tells them what they've done. Now, where he was on the mountain, it seems like the topography there would have been that Moses and, uh, Moses and uh, the other guy, Joshua, they were coming back and they probably couldn't see, but they could hear the noise that was going on. And so the Lord says they have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly. They've been disobedient. They've made a molded calf. They've worshiped it. They've sacrificed to it. And they've said, this is your God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Wow, can you imagine? Can you imagine having the Lord tell you and you're their leader, this is what your people have done? So what a great challenge for, for for Moses! And in verses nine to ten, he really takes that on. And so, um, let's go ahead and pick up our reading at verse seven, and we'll go seven through um, uh, verse uh, verse ten. And the Lord said to Moses, "Go, get down, for your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, have corrupted themselves; they have turned aside quickly out of the land which uh, out of the way which I commanded them." They have made themselves a molded calf and they've worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone and my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and I will make of you a great nation. Verse 11. from the harm to your people. What a great challenge for Moses. God is ready to pass judgment on this stiff-necked people. And he tells Moses, I will make you a great nation. Moses, you're going to take the place of, of Abraham. Now the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will still be fulfilled because Moses is the descendant. But it's like he's saying, Moses, I'm going to make a great nation out of you now. I'm going to wipe these people out, and this will become your nation. Um, the promise of Abraham could still, could still be me. But Moses is not a fatalist. He's not saying, well, whatever God will do, God will do. And sometimes we get in that place, I think we just say, well, whatever God wants to do, he's sovereign. We'll just let him do it. But Moses prays what he believes is God's heart. It says that he pleaded with him. With that, The word has the idea that he was mourning over it. He was pleading with it. Uh, He was grieved with it. It would be like a woman in travail. So he prays what he believes in God's heart. And we can do this if we dwell in his word and in his presence. Remember that the Bible was written that we might know the author. And if we get to know God's heart, It makes it easy for us to pray as Moses did as he intercedes. He prays a strong prayer, not a long prayer. Sometimes people think they're heard for their many words. But as you look at what Moses prays here, it's a very short prayer. In verse verse 11, he says, First off, Lord, I'm giving these people back to you. They're your people. You brought them out. He prays about God's grace. You're the one that delivered them from their bondage and from their imprisonment. In verse 12, he says, if you don't do this, uh, if you do this, the Egyptians are going to talk about you and they're going to take away your glory. Remember, you beat them up with the 10 plagues. You got the people through the Red Sea. You killed Pharaoh and all his army. And now you brought your people out here to kill them. They're going to be talking about that And so your glory is going to be diminished from that great victory to destroying your people. And in verse 13, he says, Your goodness. You remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Lord, keep your promises. You are a good God who is always faithful. You said you would multiply them and give them this land. So, Lord, keep your promise. Don't destroy the people. And then in verse 14, God answers Moses' prayer. He says to him, So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. He was ready to destroy Israel and start over. All Moses had to do was leave God alone. But Moses labored and interceded according to God's nature. He knew that God was gracious. He knew that God was long-suffering. He knew that God had chosen this people. He knew that he was going to use this stiff-necked people to show the glory of God, and one day bring the Messiah. How's our, inter- our intercessory prayer life? Do we intercede for others in our family, in our neighborhood, in our communities, in our nation, like Moses did for these people? It seems like he was able to turn the heart of God, if you could imagine that. We read in Romans eight twenty six. This, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we do not know how we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us from groanings which cannot be uttered. Praying in the Spirit, or or when you hear the voice of God, if you're spending time with the Lord, and you're in His Word, and you're meditating on it, and you're being quiet before the Lord, you're going to hear the voice of the Lord. And the voice of the Lord may tell you to pray for somebody you haven't been praying for or somebody that you think has it all together. And so there's going to be this great opportunity to uh, intercede. But the word relented there has caused some people to have problems because they say, well, how can the Lord relent? How can He change His mind? How can He do this? Well, the King James, the New King James, and the NIV, they all use the word, the Lord relented. Uh, But the New American Standard says it like this. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said that he would do to the people. The Amplified Version says this. The Lord turned from the evil which he had thought to do. And the Septuagint read like this. The Lord was moved with compassion to save his people. Wait a minute. What do you mean you're moved with compassion? They just made an altar. They just took the golden calf and they put it in front of the altar. They sacrificed to this golden calf. They've said all these things wrong, and you're moved to compassion for your people. And there's a frustration sometimes when we talk about the attributes of God. When God is speaking to the church or speaking through people, and the people who are writing the book and the literature that's coming our way are using terms and language that is familiar to us as human beings. Here's what what Spurgeon had to say about this. Because Many are frustrated about this part of language that's used in our Bible. So Spurgeon says, Some are frustrated because the Bible describes God's action in human terms, but they really cannot be described in any other way. I suppose that I need not say that this verse speaks after the manner of men. I do not know after what other manner we can speak. To speak of God after the manner of God is reserved for God himself, and mortal men could not comprehend such speech. In this sense, the Lord often speaks not according to the literal fact, but according to the appearance of things to us, in order that we may understand so far as the human can comprehend the divine. And so that's one of the things that's taking. Remember he said, my ways are not your ways, my words are not your ways. Those are things that the Lord is doing here. And that's what he's saying here. So what that really means about the Lord relented, you know, it it seems like he changed his mind, but I like the way the Septuagint uh, read it there where it says he will have compassion to save these people. We'll see how that goes uh, as we go on. A good example of this using the language of the day or the language that uh, Moses wrote this in is verses seven and nine, God speaking but using language of man. And the Lord said to Moses, Go get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it, says and said, This is the this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That's you know, I we can't even comprehend what God was really feeling or sensing as he observed this stiff-necked people sacrifice, building this idol and then sacrificing to it. So that's the best we could get out of it. So from verse 15 to the end of the uh, chapter, is one of the most striking scenes you know, uh, ever recorded in Scripture. It's just a, an amazing story. Moses comes down from the mountain and he's carrying the tablets. And you've, I'm sure, all seen the movie, The Ten Commandments. Joshua heard the noise and thought they were preparing for war. And Moses said, no, there's a party going on down there, and we're going to find out what's happening. So Moses was angry, and he threw the tablets and he broke them. Now, Moses has had a problem with anger. Now, we think Moses is a leader. We think he's one of those great guys of the Bible. But he has some anger. Now, guys, any of you got anger? Any of you, oh, Ladies, any of you got anger? Any of you ever get angry? and speak out of sorts, and act out of sorts. Moses was an angry guy. You remember in Egypt, he was angry when he saw the Egyptian fighting with the Israelis, so he killed him. Then he had to run, and he had to hide, and then he comes back. Remember when he gets to the rock the second time, and he becomes angry with the people, and he smites the rock when he was supposed to speak to So Moses has had a problem with anger. He had some consequences. God forgave him, but he had some consequences. He didn't get to go into the, to the promised land, but he had anger, but he still is a person who can intercede and go to God and ask for help. So he took the calf, and he burned it up, and he ground it up to powder. And it was interesting, one of the commentators went into great length about the the powdered gold. Do you know that precious metals can be ground up so fine, it's like the dust that's on a moth or a butterfly. You ever seen that little moth, the little powder that's on those wings? That's how fine Precious metals can be taken down to their, just, just dust. And then he pours it in the stream or on the water, and then he makes them drink it, you know. Um, precious metals, can, well, I told you, can be burned So why did he do this? Why did he burn it, grind it up, and make them drink it? I think there's a couple reasons. To show that this God was absolutely nothing and could be destroyed, where the real God couldn't to completely obliterate this idol. You aren't supposed to make any idols. You're not supposed to make graven images. Those are the first laws that we were given and to completely obliterate it. And then to make people pay immediately some consequences for their sin. You know, that's one of the things that some of us have struggled with in life is that we can easily go back and get God to forgive us of our sin. But he still lets us pay the price of our sin. There's still a consequence that sometimes takes years to clean up or to amend or to pay for whatever, whatever that might be. Um, so there's sometimes consequences. So in verse 21, Moses asked Aaron a question. He says, and Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Moses, you're supposed to be a leader. What happened And then Aaron answers in verse 22, The people, they're set on evil. You know, we may not think our hearts are evil, but the Bible says that they are. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can even know it? And I think that's one of the things that I like about David is when David prayed, Search me, O God, and know my way and see if there is any evil in my heart that's a prayer that we should really pray for ourselves is that, God, search my heart. Search my heart and show me. And, and when we get it pretty good, okay, God, go one layer deeper. Go one more layer deeper. And where am I frustrated? Where am I anxious? Where, I'm, where am I unbelieving? Where, where is my faith limited? Go, go one more step down there. The Bible also says, For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts and murders, adulterers, fornication, thefts, false witnesses, and blasphemies. And you know the the words of Jesus when he said, you know, murder happens in your heart, adultery happens in your heart, and so you have to be careful with that. So Aaron says those, those people, their hearts are set on evil. So Moses saw the people that they were unrestrained, and some of the darkest days of Israel history, I think this was clearly one of them, but it's characterized by this phrase later on when we get to Judges, everyone did right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They, they had the law. They were given the law. They had this book of the covenant that they were given, and they were concentrated. So Moses called the question, whoever is on the Lord's side, come over here. While before Moses was their advocate, he was interceding for him, Now he's become a preacher, and he's called the question. And so I would make sure that all of you know that we're a Christian church. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe he lived and died for our sins and hung on the cross and he rose from the dead. And we believe that. And if you have questions about that or need to come to grips with that, we'd love to talk to you because that's what we are as a Christian church. Moses called the question. He says, if you're on the Lord's side, come here. And then after that, we see the judgment of the Levites. The the Levites were called out. They were told to take their swords and go through the camp. And that day... About 3,000 people died. So Moses leads the people saying, consecrate yourself. Now he comes right back, okay, horrible sin, horrible things, but let's consecrate ourselves. And then in verse 30, he calls out their great sin and adds that I'll go to the Lord. So in verse 30, he says, Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, So now I will go to the Lord, and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And Moses returned to the Lord and said, All these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a god of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. He calls out their great sin, and he adds, I'll go to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement. Well, atonement is the satisfaction of a wrong. It's reconciliation between God and man, and Jesus did that for us on the cross. We have been reconciled with God. We have been atoned. Now Jesus is interceding for us. Therefore, it says in Hebrews, he is able to save to the uttermost those who call and come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You think if Moses travailed and pleaded with God for these people, can you imagine how Jesus is prevailing for and inter- interceding for us? He's up there before the Father praying for this church, for you as individuals, that God will, will bless us. So last week we considered some of the types that Moses was of Jesus. We've been looking at the different types. They were both born under a king who wanted to kill them. They both went down to Egypt. They both were brought up out of Egypt. They both went up on a mountain. And Jesus and Moses came to bring and to speak his word. Now, we see that both of them, Jesus and Moses, have been seen as intercessors for people and one who makes atonement for the sins. And I like what he, what he said there, what Moses said there. He says, and if you won't save them, then blot me out of your book. I'll take their place. Both Moses and Jesus were willing to go all the way. Jesus in the garden and Moses here in Exodus 32. So what a story. Coming down from the mountain, throwing the thing down, burning the thing, making him drink the gold sitting and sacrificing and building an altar, I mean, just a colorful, colorful story. I mean, if I 'm God, and this three million people that I just rescued and brought out of here just did this, and now they built this gold idol, and Moses has only been gone forty days, i you know I'd say, you know what I'm just going to give up on these guys it's just not It's not worth the effort, and then you read this, then you read this God's amazing grace, where you would never find it. Verse 34. Now therefore go, lead the people to the place of which I have spoken before you. Go into the promised land, Moses. Take these people there. Behold, my angel shall go before you. What? After all they did? You're going to let your angel God go before them and lead them into the promised land? That's amazing grace in an unexpected place. Because this chapter has always been to most of us the chapter of how they sinned, how they made an idol, and the, and the repercussions of that. But God says, my angel is going to go before you. That's amazing grace. That is just amazing. And so we have to remember that. When we mess up, when we sin, when we take communion in a few minutes, there is God's amazing grace that is there for us. But the chapter doesn't end with that. I'd, I wanted to end with that, but I felt it wouldn't be it wouldn't be good because it ends with this. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit your for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf and with Aaron. You know, sometimes we receive God's amazing grace, but we still have to go through the consequences. Sometimes a person, we have uh, two employees down at Marietta at the conference center, both convicted murderers, both felons. They went to prison, one for 27 years, one for 32 years. And they got right with God. One of them opened a a Bible study in the prison and brought a lot of people to Christ. And now they have a, a, a home where they're bringing kids in. It's called Completely Restored. And they're working with these people that have been in prison. You know what? They did the murder. They asked God to forgive them, and during those years of incarceration, they were forgiven. They were heaven-bound. But they still had to pay the price. They had to go through those consequences. I pray that as we start to realize God's amazing grace, that if we have consequences of our past sins, that it will be overshadowed immensely by God's amazing grace. His grace forgives us of all those sins. We are positionally clean before God. We are standing righteous before Him. So amazing grace in unexpected places.